Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and this time my guest is Leanne Dempster, CEO of Hibernian Football Club. The mightily impressive Leanne arrived at Hibs from Motherwell, having been chief executive there too. Our chat took place at Hibs Easter Road Stadium. The Nutmeg podcast drops from the planet blether every fortnight. Do have a look at our back catalogue. Please subscribe, review, give us some stars. To us, they're like the blue sachet in a packet of salt and shake crisps. This podcast stands on the ample shoulders of our print magazine. Issue 11 of Nutmeg is out now. Please see nutmegmagazine.co.uk for more. Enough of that. Here's the podcast. Q-tape. Working in a football ground, surely the greatest possible workplace. Do you never get distracted and, you know, go and want to kick a ball in the net? I never want to kick a ball in the net, but you're absolutely right about the environment. It's uh, it's a terrific place to come every day or down to the training centre. I did work for an airline at a point in my life and uh, was based at Gatwick Airport, which sounds slightly dull and boring, but for somebody who's also interested in uh, the airline industry, that was pretty exciting as well. So I've been feel quite blessed, to be honest. Mm. I'd be so distracted, I'd just be staring at the groundsman all day and things like that. There are the odd occasion where you just sort of look at the pitch and see what's happening outside, but I mean, it's just it's a wonderful place to work. I think I'd do nothing. That's why you're in charge of things and I'm in charge of my cat. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the truth of it all. And you say in your Twitter profile you're an M8 commuter, so what's on the radio in the car? On the radio, pretty much all the time is Radio 4 or the... BBC World Service, something like that. I don't like music in the, on the radio uh, when I'm travelling. I love music, I like live music, but for me, the, the opportunity is catching up with the Today programme in the morning and uh, and then obviously uh, heading home if I can do that. I, I get Radio 4 uh, PM programme. Is the Today programme a nice way to depress yourself every day at the moment? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, the word Brexit does happen a few <laughs> times on that, to be perfectly honest, but um, no, I just I love that. I just think I, I think it's a, a quality radio station. I, I'm, a, I'm a big consumer of it. Coming all the way back to your youth, this is the Freudian psychiatrist chair questions. When do you first remember noticing football? Was it a family thing? Um, no, I, I kind of remember Scotland, the national team. I remember Argentina um, and everything associated with it in the songs. For some reason, I have the kind of face of Joe Jordan as a memory as a child. Probably without his teeth, to be honest. Is that pleasant? I was going to say, it's not the most pleasant uh, image to conjure. It's funny, I never really get... I've never been a person that gets a bit starstruck or anything like that, but in the board, in the boardroom you get a lot of kind of ex-footballers and managers and things come, and there are two footballers, both at Motherwell, actually, when I was there, who came to the boardroom. One was Joe Jordan and the other one was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And you know you have a wee moment when you walk in and you, I saw jo- Joe Jordan and I just thought, Oh my word, there's, there's Joe. And I, I just kind of had a flashback to my, my <laughs> youth. And then obviously uh, we so shy just the memory of his time at Man United and obviously the, the European Cup. Just So you get a chance to kind of meet great folk like that. But he, Joe is my kind of probably the kind of, when I think about my childhood and football, that he's probably the guy. <laughs> sort of like a, a living panini sticker when you meet someone like that, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And as I say, I don't normally get a bit starstruck, but for him, I, I'll make an exception. So was it a love of football in your youth or is it something that's happened later on? I mean, I went to. Uh, I mean, I, I think. Uh, I think it's well known that I went to football matches. Um, I'm interested in football 
But the thing that got me into football was an opportunity that was presented to me by the then Motherwell owner, John Boyle. I'd never thought of a career in football, to be honest. It was it was an absolute opportunity, just a moment. I used to work for John and do various things in different businesses for him, and one day he randomly asked me to be going... Um, you know, make a tra- help him make a transition at Motherwell. And uh, that was back in 2008. I said to him, yeah, no problem, I'll do it for three months. Um, but a bit like what we started talking about at first, the minute I walked into the stadium, honestly, quite literally, within a few days of being there, I just thought, wow, this is terrific. Were you one who would play football in the street or at school or anything? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we like every other kid in the 70s and 80s, played out on the street, out with our bikes, you know, up the park, playing football and... You know, tagging everything else you do and hide and seek and all that malarkey. You know, we we were out all the time, but it it feels like almost a different era now. I, I get it when it is a different era, I guess, but it feels just like a different time where you don't see that anymore. But I had the benefit of having a great group of friends, a local park, a local swimming bath, and just being out and enjoying myself all the time. It is amazing that clubs like Hibs continue to produce great young players because you wonder when they're playing, apart from informal games on a Saturday and a Sunday, you don't often see kids knocking the ball around in the, in the street anymore. Yeah, which is which is obviously why things like Club Academy Scotland and the, the kind of direction of travel that the Scottish FA have taken with um, the schools of excellence, uh, where 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 the kids actually they go to school, but obviously part of that is you know playing football, so they get the extra hours every day and every week and obviously that's not open to everybody but I think that also means that when the young people when the kids and when the boys come to uh, you know the elite academy here at Hibernian we need to we need to really work hard when we've got them. So going back to you when did you leave school and what happened next? I left school and I kind of I wasn't prepared really to leave school I was prepared well I was prepared to leave school but I was absolutely determined to join the services particularly the army so I had kind of gone through my school career just thinking about yeah, actually it's a it's a, easy to do I'll just rock up to a, an army recruitment centre and of course I'll be accepted why would the no type thing you know and I got my first knock back um, and just was just devastated really genuinely devastated because I, I had no ambition other than to, to join the services I mean I don't know how many times I tried I think you know six seven eight times I tried to join the army at various recruitment places and days and what have you and just could not get in tried to join the navy <laughs> I got a knock back from there as well and then went to try and join the RAF. But by that point, it was just, it was obvious that I wasn't going to get into the services and I had to think about something else. So I was never really prepared, if I'm honest, to leave school. Mm-hmm. And I, I look back in my school time with some regret, not necessarily just from an academic perspective, but I don't think, I genuinely don't think I got a lot of help at school in terms of make, help, helped to make good choices and think about things like careers. Because really at that time, no disrespect to to the kind of family or anything like that but the ambition really at that point was leave school, get a job try and get a good job but there was never any kind of definition of what a good job was or what kind of career progression might be and it was only really later on when I thought about it I thought, gosh, I was really unprepared you know, incredibly unprepared And then I read an interesting career development in death Yeah, I mean, that again, a bit random but I kind of was so I was so, um just, I didn't really know what to do next and that to me appealed in a way, I don't know how it was suggested to me or whether I kind of came across it myself but it, all of a sudden it kind of, I realised it in a way it was another type of service and I tried to get accepted into one of the kind of 
funeral director firms in Glasgow, literally got the yellow pages out. I remember doing it and hand writing sort of 47 letters and sending them away. And those that came back to me effectively said, no jobs, it's a family service, in and around it, and actually it's a kind of male-dominated, male-oriented. At that point it was, right, back in the 86, 87. But one organisation, one family um, came back to me and sort of gave me an opportunity. Um, I went in and did that. Actually, if I'm honest, for a relatively short period of time and left there and moved on to something else. But I look back on that as a great experience. And actually, I do again have a wee bit of regret at kind of not trying to stay there and do something there because I genuinely did enjoy it and I genuinely felt that it was a, a, a service. And that point in my life, random, I know, but <laughs> a funny experience. It's definitely an interesting reinterpretation of the Yellow Pages adverts of the days. There wasn't a lovely one with a lovely piano tune and someone looking up Undertakers, I don't think, at the time. There was not, no. <laughs> so, Leanne, after that dalliance uh, in the world of undertaking, there's a sentence I didn't think I'd be saying on the Nutmeg podcast, a move into marketing and communications and advertising. So how did that come about and where did you begin to work? I got the opportunity to go and work, so you're talking about probably 88 and then around that time in an agency in Glasgow, and the agency was called Smith Breckenridge, unfortunately no longer with us, but it was what you would call, I guess in the olden days, a full service agency, and I went to work there, you'll laugh again when you think about it, but there was no um, there was no computers or anything at that point, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't come around uh, and then the what the numbers four eight six came into my head because that was obviously the first personal computer that you could buy. So it was very traditional, and that meant that you did you produced the adverts, you worked with the client, you booked their media, so you 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 advised them in the media that they should be buying, and then you went away and you went away and bought it. I didn't really start doing that. I, I started as a kind of uh, administrator receptionist, but quite quickly get put through into the production department, which was working with the guys, the artists and helping them, once they had completed the artwork, I'd help them complete their artwork. Then I moved into something called traffic, and, um, which is basically when you you get the advert, it physically has to go. So no ISDN lines, no email, no anything like that, but you had to physically get these adverts all over, the, usually the UK, very really worldwide. And that was my job, I did that for a number of years. And then eventually I went into the kind of planner buyer side of it, which is working with the clients, advising them on what should buy, and then actively getting into the marketplace and buying it, and just loved it. There was three young guys there, that, and we worked together as a really close team, we socialised together, we just had a really good time, we all loved the same type of music. We were young, used to go out and you know, have a great time. Um, what type of music is that? What, what would If you weren't listening to Radio 4, what would you be listening to? Um, very much of the kind of, I guess, uh, at that point, some of the more indie stuff. Um, I probably Some of the, even the bands, I probably can't tell you the names of the bands and stuff like that. But the safe stuff, you know, the Smiths, Rage Against the Machine, and you know, some of, just I love all that stuff, you know. Um, stuff you'll never get in a football dressing room. Stuff you won't get there, no. And then as I got older, I just got, I've got a lot kind of, I've started listening to other things. I find myself listening to things like Kylie and Cher and all Are that. Are you going now. backwards? I must be. That's quite a good idea, actually. But... Um, uh, I loved bands like uh, The Cult and The Mission and things like that. These are bands that yeah, I kind of grew up with and Simple Minds just adored. And, and we went to live music all the time. You know, we're in the Barrowlands, t- you know, two, three, four times a month type thing. Um, so that was... And I just had... A, it was just a... It was a liberating, fantastic experience. So that kind of got me into media and advertising. And stayed there for quite a long time and then moved into what was a, 
a kind of up and coming big agency in in, in Glasgow uh, called uh, Featherbrooks Bank, uh, and they, um, they they were the kind of dominant agency uh, in Scotland for a long time. They eventually got bought out uh, by another agency, but again spent yeah probably spent sort of between sort of fifteen and eighteen years in different roles in media and advertising, and it, it was just a really as you would expect right it's a creative environment, um, which means that it's an enjoyable environment, and I would. Uh, you know, I look back in that time really fondly. Do you think there are things you took from your work in that industry into football, such as messaging, getting messages across to supporters? Because football clubs notoriously haven't always been very good at it. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the basic principles of marketing and communication. And interestingly, actually, I think one of the, the, one of the other things which I, th- I recognised quite early in football was kind of organisation. If you work at an agency, right, you have... You're active on anything between sort of 40 and 50 clients at a time. Most of the time they're active. They're all booking ads, they're all booking press ads, TV ads, radio ads. So not only are you remembering the clients that you're working on and the clients that you're working with, you're remembering what the media schedules are like, what the prices are paying, what, you know, you're booking adverts in the newspaper, what page they should be on. I mean, so at that point, it's so I've, I had this ability really to work on lots of different bits of business. And I would like to think I had the ch- the ability to work on them really well. So it brought me a kind of level of organisation. And I don't get stressed about workload, you know, because I came from an industry where basically you had a boot in your throat the whole time. So you were just you were able to, uh, able that nothing, you know, big presentations and things don't, uh, don't, uh, don't worry me. And then the other thing I think is just negotiation and I think a bit of determination because in the latter part of my career, when we were working on really big bits of business, I mean, you're work, you know, I was probably responsible for a media media budget of kind of ranging each year from anything between about thirty five and fifty million. So you're spending a lot of money. So you have to make sure that you've got great rates and you, know, you get great value for the clients. So negotiations and kind of determination, I think, were have kind of stayed with me from my media time. So slightly bigger than the Hibs players' budget. There. Just tight, just <laughs> ever so, yeah. So you mentioned this move into football, John Boyle. Asked you to come along to Motherwell. Tell us about what you found at Fir Park, what you found on those those first, only for three months as it was. Yeah, I mean, costed. John sort of did what many really successful business people do. You know, he went back to his roots and bought uh, Motherwell Football Club. And he had a real determination to, to turn it into a force in the game in Scotland. And his motivation, if I'm honest, was, and I genuinely believe this was one of much more community orientated and community focus. And I, but I don't think he knew how to bring that to life, really. And the way that he brought it to life was actually just to try and make them competitive. Um, and in trying to make them competitive, he managed to lose the best part of 10 or 11 million quid. And I think, you know, there's lots of different stories associated around, you know, um, the, the difficulties that Motherwell had. But John effectively said to me that he was looking for a, a bit of a legacy. He wanted an exit from Motherwell, but he wanted a good exit from Motherwell. He wanted to protect the club. You know, he had real affection for it, but it was time for him to go. Basically, he wasn't going to fund it any longer. Um, so I, when I went in, it was really just a, it was almost a business. It was a kind of business flip, and for want of a better description, but that changed quite quickly when I went in because you get involved in the nuances of the game. Let's put it that way. And uh, but we, I went into Motherwell, and we we started to try and put in some, I guess, what you would say, some general business practices that might have not existed before. And um, we got a great response from the people who were there, I think who were just maybe looking for that bit of direction. And I think, importantly, they were looking for somebody who was prepared to muck in and you know roll their sleeves up. 
and that's definitely one of my character traits. I'm a bit of a, uh, I'm quite operational. I still like to be quite operational. And I described myself before as an interferer. I'm, when I say I'm an interferer, I mean that not in terms of football or making any comment. Or so what I mean is in terms of the kind of operation in business. So I'm interested in things like match day safety. I'm interested in, you know, the seating configurations, ticketing and, you know, the kind of more practical elements of the club. And the club, I think, with that new direction and that a bit of energy around it and some new people, we just, we went on a... We went on a to a period of real success for the club, and uh, both on the pitch and we 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 became a bit more financially stable. Which was John had been kind of putting money into the club, you know, every six months or so. But we we got to a position where John didn't have to fund the club any longer, um, and moved to a position where we were actually more over than not living within our means, which isn't which you know for a you know a club that. You know, normally would sit in the kind of the bottom six, and I mean that with the most respect to Motherwell. But in terms of player budgets and the the ability, um, um, you know, it's tough when you're, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're not at, to, at the top of the league or winning cups and things like that, because that's where the ultimately that's where the finances. Being in the black and living within your means is a real achievement in in Scottish football, particularly with the yeah. lack of TV money sloshing around. Really. Well, listen, when you're not getting funded, it focuses the mind. You know, if there's nobody kind of coming in behind to help, you can only you 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 don't print fifty pound notes round the back of the stand. It just doesn't happen. So you need to make good decisions. And I think at Motherwell at that time, and certainly Motherwell now, I think you, you know they've done. Alan has done a, a terrific job as well since since I left, and I think great credit to him. But the, I think there's a real realism. But there's game changers. Things that are game changers for clubs like Motherwell and actually for clubs like us. You know, good player sales. If you do get. Um, Football success and for Motherwell last year that was two finals, so there's you know significant income there. Um, and if you're capable or you get in a European competition, um, you know there's uh, that sometimes that can be game changing money as well. So I mean there are opportunities and you only need to do these things once or twice. And then if you recycle and use that money well, it's you know it lets you kind of use that as a as a launch pad for other things. You mentioned implementing business practices and things when you went into Motherwell. Were you surprised? at the way football is run when you entered it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't dreadful. I don't mean that by any means, but I just think um, I think it just it just needed somebody who wasn't steeped in the game. And I think I had the real benefit of being able to get in there and basically actually say the phrase, this might be a stupid question, but... Um, and, you know, and there's so many folk in football, and again, I mean this respectfully, but there maybe some, maybe not so much now, but there are so many folk in football who want it to remain like a dark art, and it isn't. A lot of it is order, structure, common sense, good people, good decisions, long-term planning. Okay, people will argue you can't do long-term planning without a bit of short-term, we, we know that, but um, it's like anything else in life, you know. It's almost like, you know, you think about your your personal account and how you run your own life, you know. You have to you have to be able to pay your bills, you have to be able to plan, you have to be able to save, you have to make good decisions. It isn't really that hard. The thing that I realised really quickly was the connection of the support into the local team. And I think I realised that because I mean an average gate at Motherwell might be in terms of home support might be sort of be three and a half, four thousand in and around. But oftentimes you would meet the same people again. Uh, again and again and you would get to understand some things about their life and 
more often than not, the club was involved and always, always, but certainly a lot of the time was at the kind of centres of their lives and the decisions and the good things that were happening in their lives. You know, the things that mattered to them, the good memories that they had with their folks or their father that might have passed away or when their kids were born or whatever it might well be. And for, and for my time at Motherwell, it was, you know, the Scottish Cup final, 1991, Stevie Kirk. Um, you know, everybody talked about that, you know, and, and with real fondness and they were able to think. So that that really made me understand the, the kind of strength. Now, back in advertising, I worked, I was seconded into work on the Scottish executive business, all their social uh, campaigns. When I say social, I don't mean Twitter and Facebook. What I mean is things like um, alcohol misuse, fire safety, teacher recruitment, blah, blah, blah. But I used to spend tens of millions of pounds with the Scottish Government in order to try and influence behaviour. And hang on a minute, what we had is, we had all these football fans kind of coming towards us. They were wanting to consume the media that, that we were talking to them about, rather than us trying to put adverts and foist it onto them. These guys were running towards us, they wanted to listen. And I was thinking, oh, this is a real, it's a real opportunity. If football can get itself organised, there's a real opportunity for football to be a, a medium in force for good. And it is in pockets, and it is individually in clubs but I still think the voice of football isn't heard to the strength and depth that it needs to be so within a very short space of time in Motherwell I mean I was I am still you know very fond of Fir Park and you know people used to come to Fir Park and they would kind of screw their face up and like oh, it's just an old stadium and you've got an old wooden stand and I would say to them just you be respectful and remember that the memories that were created in this stand and the things that the people have seen in this stadium over the years brilliant memories so you know, you know I'm kind of I'm not having it type thing. You know? mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting coming in from a, a business side and a business point of view. Football is a business, and yet it's not because of that fan base. Where, where do you stand on that? Oh, listen, I've been been persuaded into making decisions that in normal life you would just say probably not. But for various reasons in football, whether it be emotional or tactical, whatever it might well be, you probably go and do things that otherwise you might that you might not. But that's I think that's. In some ways, that's kind of part and parcel. But never, never, hopefully, never at any point that there is a you know, tremendous risk involved. So the time at Motherwell came to an end. What was so irresistible about Hibernian? I had, yeah, I'd been at Motherwell for six years, and I think it was definitely coming to the time there that it was time. You know, I was finding myself doing the same things again and again, and that wasn't that wasn't good for the club, and it wasn't it wasn't good or stimulating for me. I was probably in the kind of mindset of saying, right, okay, I need to find a new move. Now, I was thinking about sport rather than just football, so my mind was quite open. And I heard kind of indirectly that Hibernian were interested in having a conversation with me. And then what eventually happened, I mean, what's not to like here? Let's be honest, it's a capital city club. At that point, you know, a club that had um, hadn't performed really to its capacity for, for a period of time. It was maybe... Needing, uh, was needing a kind of a kind of fresh approach. Perhaps the supporters were—I wouldn't say disenchanted with the club prior to relegation, but I think they they needed, uh, I think they needed a sort of sense of energy and some freshness. So that was a real appeal to me because you could see that there was a real opportunity to get if you could motivate supporters to get them back to the stadium, then that's a, a game changer. Allowed, and that basically funds you to allow to be able to go and do different things. People screw their face up when you use the word infrastructure, right? Because they go over there, they go again, rattling on about infrastructure. But it's so important because you come into a stadium like this, and other than kind of FM maintenance and other bits and bods, and if you look at the training centre, the 
the vast majority of the expensive work is done. So that for a chief executive and for a head of football operations and others allows you to focus on actually what makes the club tick and that is football and that is football structures, it's the academy, the players, the recruitment, the transition. Because I'm not sitting here every day thinking, how can I build a training centre? How can we build a new stadium? I've got these kind of significant uh, events kind of crashing towards me. So that was that was that was definitely a motivator, um, and you know it's a fantastic it, it's a, fan, it, a really fantastic club and the opportunity to work here. I think when it came towards me, I didn't really think twice. I thought, right, okay, I kind of want to make this happen. Um, but I was dead honest with the guys at Motherwell. I told them I had sort of told them in the run-up to that year, that it was kind of getting to the end of my time and that they should start preparing for that. Um, um, and they were fantastic about it. And equally, when I took the job at Motherwell, I, uh, sorry, at Hibernian, I kept them involved. And then we kind of, tra- hopefully, I think, we transitioned out in a, a good way. So an exciting appointment and an exciting time for you, but a difficult time to come in, as you hint, relegation, and one of the first jobs was to negotiate the future of Terry Butcher. Yeah, I mean, the first... The, my first job actually coming in here the, was to deal, or not to deal with, but to meet about 30-odd supporters, um, representatives of the various supporters association, whilst there was a demonstration in the car park. So there was 3,500-odd people outside. There was a disco bus going on and a demonstration. I think I'll call it a party, right? But let's be honest, it was a demonstration. And uh, I'm in the room with 30, 30, 35 folk representing the, the supporters associations, length and breadth of the length and breadth of the country and obviously relegations just happened everybody's devastated folk are angry there was race voices there was just the whole raft of stuff going on and I'm thinking I actually haven't even started here yet my, my, my job doesn't actually start here for another week what am I doing you know but all things seriously that was my first kind of foray into um, all things to be earning and I think that was good because I was able to if you like get pr- put a proper voice and face to the person that they were expecting to come in and I was trying my best to make them understand or at least have some confidence that you know that we did have a we did have a big plan for the club and we and and that albeit it was going to be incredibly difficult because let's not pretend getting relegated in pretty disastrous circumstances into a league where Rangers and Hearts are already two teams who knew they were going to be there it's not the best start to be honest I remember being at the Hamilton game with the seagulls swirling and swooping around and the litter across the pitch. And I remember thinking, good luck to you. Yeah, it's funny actually because Rod had invited me to that game and I had made a conscious decision, not because I thought there would be an issue, I genuinely, respectfully to uh, to Hamilton, I genuinely didn't think that, I thought I thought Hibs would do what they had to do to, to stay in the league. But I genuinely thought, right, okay, I'm not, I don't want to kind of get, I don't want to have, be associated in any way or mixed up with, that season, I want a nice, clean, fresh start, so I'm, I'm not going to come. I went away for a couple of days, and actually, as I, as I landed, the plane landed, I put my phone on, bing, 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 and I'm just kind of looking at it going, oh my word, you know. But actually, um, it allowed, I guess it allowed me in a strange way to make some quite tough and hard decisions, and that went across the whole club. Because I think... I think let's not pretend it might have been harder to make some of the tough and hard decisions that you had to make if the club had remained in the Premier League. But there were some material things that had to change and I had the space now and the determination to do it. You were able to collect yourselves and the appointment of Alan Stubbs. 
yeah. give things a bit of a, a kick up the backside. Yeah, you? and I'll, I'm a great believer in that a manager is, you, you choose a manager, a head coach, for not just for necessarily the kind of the tactical and technical reasons that you do it, but you, you choose them because they're right for that period in the time of the club and the life of the club. And Alan was most certainly that because we were we were kind of trying to write the story. Alan was looking after and responsible for the the academy down at Everton, and we wanted to create a club that embraced. I don't mean I don't mean modern football, but you know we've got we've got real opportunities within sport and football to make a difference to the players in terms of how they perform, and not just in a technical way, but through sports science and medical, through strength and conditioning through helping them be better people and he was he was very much in that mindset we didn't want a coach where you know they weren't convinced that these were really good tools and uh, and we but we also needed a coach who was hungry who wanted his first who wanted an opportunity and I'm also a great believer in from my media days when you meet somebody I think you know within sort of 60 seconds or a couple of minutes or whether first of all you can get on with that person and secondly, you can work together, do business together. And we met him, and actually, after we spent sort of, it was quite late in the evening actually, because strangely, we had went down to Manchester to meet him whilst he was doing an event, uh, a charitable event in Glasgow. We met him in a hotel, just on the outskirts of Manchester, about ten o'clock at night. You know, we're random, and uh, you know, after he left, sort of two or three hours after he left, I just turned to George quite quickly, and, right? Okay, we've got our guy, and you, I just knew we had him. Mm-hmm. My abiding memory of the first season, apart from some excellent football and, and attempt at the playoffs, is just after the playoffs I saw Alan Stubbs in Pizza Express eating alone and it was one of the saddest things I've experienced. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ooh, that's, that, a, yeah, that's a vision, yeah. It, it felt like some sort of metaphor for the playoff failure. So it was good that a year on, the cup was in the trophy cabinet. Presumably the highlight of your time so far at Hibs. Yeah, I think undoubtedly. I mean, I think I look back on that day with such fondness in terms of actually winning um, and overcoming the odds to win. And I, I, we enjoyed it so much. And I do wish, I hope it happens again. I really, I don't want to relive it all the time. I want it to happen again. Mm-hmm. But it was brilliant because we had failed in our quest to get promoted that year. And it was a tough, it, last kick of the ball, super sub, Bob McHugh, the rest is history. And then we had to basically a week to get ourselves together. So I think the odds were against us, to be honest, and the fixtures were difficult on the run-up. So we'd had, a, I can't remember the number of games now, but we'd had a, num- a, a long number of games in quick succession. So I think Rangers hadn't played for the best part of two or three weeks, so we felt that they were going to be fresh. I think, as it turned out, we were. We, it probably worked for us to have been playing and not having that period off. But brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Reinvigorated, let's be honest, so we didn't get promoted in year one and year two. And I think there are reasons for it. And it's not excuses, but I think there are reasons for it because of the nature of the competition. And in some ways, and, and I, I had a real quandary in year one with Motherwell and Rangers playing for, for Rangers to go up into the Premier League because it would have meant Motherwell being relegated. But if I'm being honest, purely from a Hibernian perspective, it wasn't good that Rangers never went up in the first year either because it meant that we obviously had another you know, big competitor in the league in, in, in year two. But the Scottish Cup allowed us to keep... This big, I call it the big project. It allowed us to keep the big project alive because I think if we hadn't been, if hadn't won the Scottish Cup, and rightly people would have been kind of very, I don't think they'd have been sort of saying it's time for you to go. Maybe they may well have done, but they might have been saying right, okay, you've got one more crack at this type of thing. Mm-hmm. 
What do you remember of that day in May? What's it like for a chief exec? Did you wake up with the same butterflies as supporters? Do you remember the the drive to Hamden? What was your what was your day like? Um, I remember I remember the getting pulled over with the police on the motorway, <laughs> uh, the bus with the directors and the kind of guests on it. They were doing checks on buses for alcohol and they, and they selected ours. They took so us you off. did all the book fast? Ah, uh, we did, yeah. We down the back of the jacket, no problem. <laughs> um, so they came in and did that check and I remember at the time going, you know, this, again, it's like, you know, why us type thing? Um, anyway, we get on. What do I remember in the day? I remember Amanda Jones, who is a non-exec director here, who is a fanatical Hibernian fan. And I remember when Dave scored the third goal, Amanda... I mean, I've never seen a person with such a, a kind of fear-stricken, manic look in her face, honestly. For the last, well, however many minutes it was, two, three minutes, Amanda was standing in the, I guess, what is the, the royal box in the, uh, in the, at Hamden, quite literally with her hands over her eyes, kind of, ro- kind of rocking from side to side because she was just so petrified that, um, that because we'd been really unlucky, as people will know before, that we would somehow not win. So I remember that, and then clearly the first, the first minute that uh, the cup came up to the boardroom at Hamden, and I saw kind of like the board kind of get a get a look at it and get a hold of it, and everything else, you know, the sunshine on the the stuff you'd expect me to see. Um, all that is was wonderful and really enjoyable. The parade was quite something. The parade was immense. That was like some to me. It was like something you'd only heard granddads talk about. It was that big. Yeah, because you, it's something that you don't. It's coming from the west of Scotland. You don't see that because it's not the norm. I don't know whether the police don't allow it or whatever. I don't understand or know, but it's not really the norm. You don't see that stuff. And then I'd seen photographs of the parade when Motherwell had won it, and there was photographs of uh, the '91 squad on, on an open top bus. And then I got on that bus. I got on the bus thinking I'm really privileged I'm on this bus I'm going to really enjoy it and then that day was just the most spectacular now honestly if you, in terms of people going oh, you've got the a civil calculator on there was 150,000 people there there was literally 150,000 200,000 people in the, on the streets and it was incredible and just the players as well I mean just players like Dave and uh, Darren and Louis and you know just the when you saw the look on Louis's face and Darren's face, well Dave obviously, but you know, when they lifted uh, the Scottish Cup, it's fantastic, you know, brilliant. But, you know, as a group in here, we're all really close. You know, the players and the directors and the staff, we we do really think think of ourselves as you know one big family. So you know, it's just lovely that they had that experience as well. How soon did you become aware that Stubbs would be moving on? Yeah, we went to, we've got a wee bit of a tradition, so a group of friends we go to, we try and go to the Champions League final every year, and it's been a tradition now, sort of, sort of eight, ten years, something like that, and it's kind of grown over time. So we do our best to buy tickets, we do our best to get air, uh, flights and stuff like that. We quite literally landed in Berlin, get in a taxi, and I got a call from Alan's agent, and he told me that Alan had the opportunity to go to Rotherham. And I thought, why did you phone me now? Just... Wait, you could have waited to Sunday. <laughs> mm. So that was basically, it was literally a week after the, the we'd won the Scottish Cup. And if I'm honest, I was surprised. I didn't think, I was not planning for Alan to leave. And I was pretty surprised. I was also quite relaxed about it as well. And I don't mean that way in the disrespect to Alan and, and John. But I was I was convinced that the structure that George and I had put in place and the people that we had in the building were capable of holding 
uh, the club together and making the decisions that we had to make until we could recruit a new head coach. But I won't tell you any lies either. I, you know, I drove down to England to meet Alan to try and persuade him to stay. But again, like I said earlier on, I think sort of a few minutes into the conversation, I knew that it wasn't going to happen. And then I tried to give him some good advice because you know, I like Alan very, very much and I wanted to make sure if he was going to make a decision that at least he could weigh it in his favour. Wished him all the best and obviously it didn't work out for him. So that brought you to the appointment of Neil Lennon. How, how did that come about? Well, um, as I said earlier, I think it's 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 there is a mixture of reasons why um, head coaches and managers get appointed, and again we knew he was for for us he was an absolutely ideal fit for the kind of next phase of the club at that point. I met when I had the discussion with Neil's agent on the fact that Neil might be available. I was really surprised, really pleasantly surprised, and uh, I sort of said to George, right, okay, we need to make sure that we we see Neil and see him pretty quickly. We went to meet him, and again, it was a bit like Alan. You know, we came in, we we met in Glasgow, you know, over a coffee for a couple of hours, and just had a good conversation, a good, a great conversation. And I left that day thinking, I'm going to do all I can to get Neil to be the manager here, um, because I felt that he was he was maybe he had all the qualities that we needed. He obviously, had all the qualities that we needed, but he also had that important. And for me, it was that kind of Neil has also got the ability to be a, a fantastic motivator. And really, I felt that where we had maybe fell, fallen short in year one and year two was just getting over the line in, in, on occasions. And so we kind of said, right, OK, we want to try and make this happen. Worked really hard to make it happen. And, and um, I'm really pleased that Neil uh, joined us because we went on to obviously do what we had to do that year, which was which was get promoted. Yes, and then stay up with, with style. Yeah. Um, must have felt... I know you won't say any journey is coming to an end because it's all about the next phase and the next phase, but a long way from those fans' meetings, I guess. Yeah, I know, absolutely. <laughs> but but they're never that far away. They're only a couple of results away, to be honest. <laughs> That's true, the precarious nature of the game. I'd like to ask you a few questions about the things that really intrigue supporters about football behind the scenes. So so tell me about the naming no names, the process of appointing a manager... It's, I think it's, if I'm being honest, I think it's very different for each club. And the process of, of finding and appointing Alan and finding and appointing Neil has actually been quite different to the process of finding and appointing Paul. Because as, as you would expect, we, as we grow as people, as we get more experience, as we understand what we need and what we want and what our aspirations are as a club, we um, you know, we change a little bit. So I don't think there's... I think if you're a if you're a professional if you're working in a professional football environment and you're, and you're responsible for the you know the recruitment of the head coach, there's always an element of, of organisation and you're always kind of I think you're always thinking about when your head coach might transition out and that they can transition out in, in um, because they go somewhere else or because it doesn't work out but you're always thinking about you know if that were to happen so you've kind of got to be prepared. So it's not as if you're always on the hunt looking for a new person when you've got somebody in post. That wouldn't be a correct way to kind of portray it. But you're certainly always aware of who's in the market and you're always kind of keeping abreast of what's going on. We um, we had a really strong idea of the type of person that we wanted. We knew that we wanted to continue with the kind of um, football DNA that we have here at the club, with the structures that we have here at the club, with someone who had the ability to embrace all of those structures, to make them better, to utilise the people that we've got here. Um, and importantly, not to be somebody. We don't want people to come in and just be here for a few months and then kind of disappear. You make decisions around having, hopefully, having people in the club for a longer period of time. So there's always a kind of, if you like, a kind of hot hot list of 
talent that you're aware of, and then when the, when the situation happens, you you really then start to kind of put that into play, because you never go and speak to anybody, and you never go and ask about anybody. Well, that's just not what happens. Certainly not how how it would work here. Um, so when we were looking, when we were looking for a head coach this time, we knew exactly the type of person that we were looking for. We had a job specification, we had a structure, um, we, were, we were able to be quite detailed about that. Um, and on this occasion, we only spoke to four people because we, I think, um, were pretty determined on what we wanted, and we just didn't want to waste people's, a lot of people's time. Um, so we knew that the people that we spoke to were first of all available, and secondly that they would. We had done a diligence, if you like, and knew that we felt what we'd discovered about them and how they operated, that they would fit uh, the role in the job description that we had. And that was absolutely the case. We had four really strong uh, conversations. Um, and then we actually set a task for um, prospective head coaches to go and kind of complete. And for us, that's about a kind of understanding of uh, understanding the club, where it was at that particular point and what, what, what they would see as the kind of next step and next stage without getting into too much detail. Um, so it was... It's, and then they present to you. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not... A, a, it is like a business. You know, we do make decisions. I hope we make decisions in, for all our people um, based on, you know, good information, what the club required at that time. So it's a mix of different things, really. Um, you sense that they were in the best suits and aftershave? Uh, <laughs> I, to be honest, it's... Uh, it's uh, I think it's our, our folk out to impress, yeah. But I think because of the people that we wanted in the club, or the people that we t- wanted to speak to, they were also interviewing us, right? Because these are not individuals that you don't have o- options, um, that don't, you know, that are going to go to a club that isn't organised, you know, over promises, under delivers, and all that malarkey. You know, no, they were, you know, so it was very much a, a two way conversation. So we were out to impress, they were out to impress. Uh, there was a bit of PowerPoint skill going on, to be perfectly honest. And it's fascinating because, I mean, certainly through the discussions, you realise how much in terms of the technical and tactical side of the game you're completely unaware of. I just find it fascinating, actually, when you speak to people who are steeped in football. I mean, I used to speak to Neil and he would, he would recount a game almost blow by blow, almost a photographic memory of the events of the game. And you speak to Paul and Robbie now and they're exactly the same. You know, they're just... They're so honed in on the match. And actually sitting in... I'm sitting in the director's box or wherever it might well be. I'm sitting there really just looking at the game. I'm looking at the game in two ways. I'm looking at just as a supporter watching a football match because that's ultimately where I end up. And secondly, I'm always looking at the stadium and the events around the stadium and not looking for misconduct, just making sure that actually nothing's out of the ordinary is going on. But speaking to these guys, it's amazing and they're Mm. impressive. There's another behind-the-scenes question. How do you keep your head as a representative of the club if Hibs score away or the referee makes a bad decision around board members from the other clubs? You're probably better to ask somebody who sits in front of me or when I <laughs> shake their seat or whatever. You know, I mean, most of the time, I would say, inevitably, um, we are very respectful of each other and very respectful of each other's clubs. But listen, we celebrate. They celebrate. And you accept the fact that the you know if somebody comes in you know they're supporting a club at Easter Road and they score a goal against us that they're going to celebrate equally you know if it happens for us we all celebrate as well respectfully um, and you know there's you know I, there's sort of a group of in terms of directors and friends who sit together at the games we sit in a if I'm honest I've got we're all sitting in a particular in a particular uh, f- formation because I kind of think right okay we've sat in this formation forever we have to. Rem- 
but at home we need to make sure that we stay in this formation and you know a bit of uh, a bit of superstition kind of creeping in. But I get a bit heated. I get a bit excited, you know, about in, in the games. I do have a running commentary of the referee sometimes, but I'm a fan. You know, I'm a fan. I, I, I enjoy the matches. And which boardroom has the best sandwiches and crisps? Uh, or is it, a level, is it a level above that now? I remember being at Allen Athletic and I was impressed because it had wagon wheels and I hadn't seen a wagon wheel for years. Oh my God! Listen, I've got, uh, I've got, uh, I've got uh, an illness called celiac disease, which means I'm unable to eat gluten, which is wheat and whatever. So I've not had the pleasure of having a wagon wheel for a long time. But the best, I have to say, when you do go to Celtic Park in Ibrox, the uh, the food is always. Uh, rather good and when you get up to Aberdeen although I don't get the chance to eat it you get fish and chips most of the time so we're looking for the campaign for gluten free fish and chips for Leanne begins here Pitodri listen we all look <laughs> after ourselves to make sure that uh, we all look after ourselves to make sure that um, when visiting supporters come we look after each other well because of course we all eat prawn sandwiches and caviar and drink champagne all the time <laughs> of course so much is about Saturday 3pm Tuesday 7.45 but this club Hibernian is about so much more in terms of its community work, which I know is very important to you. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the kind of... Uh, the two pillars at the club are obviously football, elite football and community. And it comes right from the you know, the, the essence of the club, how we began, began as a club. And I think it's as true today as it is at any other point that actually this football club has to be an anchor, has to be a big magnet at the heart of the, you know, the community where we live, where we work, in Leith and Edinburgh and obviously Lothians and beyond. And... It comes back to that kind of... The football club has a role to play in people's lives and people want to kind of sometimes unburden themselves with a, you know, with a, or share and that oftentimes gives you an opportunity to kind of either build comment around that or insight around that and it's this kind of bigger general reach. And I come back to this idea of like the Scottish government and I come back to other things in terms of how to influence... A football match is a leveller. You've got very wealthy people who come to games. Equally, you've got folk who, you know, probably you know uh, pick and choose the games that they come to, to so that they can afford to do it. But everybody's there for the same reason to enjoy the game, enjoy the match, and all, and all the rest of it. So you've got a whole raft of different folk who come. And I just think that the game in Scotland, and in particular clubs like us, have a massive impact, massive effect on the people who live locally. And that has to be important. It's got to be important because we've got the ability to do it, and we should do it in a, co- a coordinated way and we are particularly interested in things around physical health, mental health and well-being uh, suicide prevention opportunities for young people uh, kids to actually participate in sport and football and again that's just brilliant you know, people kind of share their stories and you, you so uh, Harnessing the power of football is, is just so important How many folk are going to pay to go through the turnstiles this weekend in Scotland? If you don't know the answer I can give it to you. The answer is 40, 1 in 49 so that is a massive proportion in the population. So we consume football here like no other European country. By far and away, by head of population, we consume football here more over than anybody else. And we consume more media related to football. And that's because there is a real passion. So what do you do with that passion? You can either just kind of individually let the clubs go on with it, or you can try and join it together and harness it. And I would be arguing quite strongly that football should be treated as a medium, should be treated as a way to communicate with people, should be treated as a way to have interventions when required whether it be whether it be social mental health or health related in their lives and you know it sometimes irritates me that you know we're always folk want to talk all the time about the negative stuff about the game oh you know this happened that happened we stand up and focus and we try to prevent the negative things but equally nobody stands up and says you know clubs deliver x y and z you don't say 
they intervene with people's mental health. And I can tell you just now there are people alive, certainly here in Edinburgh and when I, when we were at Motherwell because of the Motherwell Community Foundation, because of work that was directly done within the football clubs, to help that person when they were going through a really crucial part of their time in their lives, whether it be health-related or mental health-related. And it just irritates me immensely that that stuff just gets brushed under the carpet. Yet it is the national sport and it is, it's a sport that we should all be proud of and can be proud of. It's been a difficult season and uh, recent months in some ways with things happening on pitches by so-called supporters. But what is it that keeps this game special? Why do we all bother and why do we love it? Because you don't know what the score's going to be. That's as simple as that. If you, if you know what the score's going to be, if it's a foregone conclusion, then why bother? But that is why I, what I absolutely loved at Motherwell when I first went in there. I was going to games and thinking, oh my word, I don't know what's going to happen here. We're either going to win or we're going to get beaten. And you were just on the edge of your seat the whole time. So that's why you keep coming back, because it's so special. And it's a big... You know, you're in your, for want of a better description, your kind of family group, your tribe, whatever it might well be. You have an opportunity to share things together. I mean... The the only other time that I felt that connection with people that I don't know is going to a is going to a rock concert or a, or a gig, and everybody's standing there and you know what's happening whether it's that guitar rift whether it's that drum whether it's whatever the song might be, you're all waiting there standing there waiting on this one thing happening. Well, it's the same thing at football, and then when it happens, it's brilliant, and then obviously when it doesn't happen, that's not so good. 